Amen. You can be seated. We'll dismiss our school-age kids to the back. And as they're headed out, if you would turn to Acts chapter 15, we'll be spending our time today. Acts 15, and uh, before we get started, would you join me in prayer? And as I pray aloud, would you pray silently and ask the holy God of the universe that he would speak to you very personally? Father, we have come today, and um, I pray the words of that song we just sang that we echoed, that we are fighting to believe, um, that it is well with our souls, whether in victory or defeat, whether in celebration or in mourning, that we can sing that knowing that you are um, our great shepherd of our souls, and you've promised that you have uh, the best plan for us, and sometimes our vision of that from this side of eternity looks pretty, pretty awful sometimes, and it's hard, and so Father, help us... Um, where there's unbelief, belief, help us to believe. And I pray, Father, that you would speak to us very personally today, that you would bring conviction of sin, that you would bring healing where there's brokenness and discouragement. Um, Father, that this phrase of it as well would be the cry of our heart as we leave this place. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Uh, to be completely honest with you, if I can be, I did not want to preach Acts 15, um, not because there's anything crazy hard in it. It's, Acts 15 is really just uh, the Jerusalem Council. It's a theological debate is basically what it is. It's, a, uh, it's one of the first church business meetings. Um, and everyone said amen, right? Uh, and sometimes talking about church government and these kind of things are, uh, are just not super fun. And so last week, as you recognize, I went, I skipped 15 and went, jumped back in 16, which is a great passage of, you know, God doing this incredible work in the life of the Philippian jailer and of, uh, of Lydia and of that slave girl. And uh, I don't know, the Holy Spirit wouldn't let me move past this. So we're back in 15. Um, Acts 15 is really the break between Paul's first missionary journey and his second and if you remember in Acts 14, to kind of catch you up, God has been doing this incredible work um, in the church at Antioch. And uh, Antioch were uh, Gentiles, and they really represented in a complete area. They're the ones that actually sent Paul and Barnabas out. It's at Antioch that people were first called Christians or little Christ or people who walked the way of Christ. And uh, so they had this really neat thing going on. They were some of the very first Gentile Christians, and the Holy Spirit moved in amongst them in this incredible way. And when we get to Acts 15, um, there's a little debate on whether God can do this in the midst of the Gentiles or not. And so I love when the church has debate whether God can do something or not. Um, let's always go with God on, on what's happening. And, uh, and they have a, they have a, a good discussion um, about this. And I think it's important to us because I mentioned a few weeks ago and talked with a friend even yesterday that there's this, there's the three-legged stool. You remember us talking about that of orthodoxy, like, uh, the right teaching or believing the right things doctrine. Um, there's orthopraxy, which is, um, the right living or the way to live this out in the correct way. And then there's orthopathos, which is the right emotion. And sometimes we can come and we can have uh, orthodoxy, the right teaching, and orthopraxy, the right living. And that's what we saw ago in Revelation 2. They had both of those things, yet they had no real love for the Lord. And because of that, Jesus said, listen, you're doing some incredible work here, guys. And you're standing up for the right thing, but you don't love me. And if you don't love me, and if I'm not the reason that all of this religious activity is going on, I'm actually going to remove my presence just take my name off the marquee. Uh, don't call yourself little, little Christians anymore um, because I'm not going to be there. And so there's this necessary thing. And this is, we're going to get into some of this in, in, in Acts 15 because all of us like, uh, like one of the legs of that stool a little more, 
Some of us in here, we're like the word guys, right? Or, or gals. We're like, man, man, just the word of God. It's just so rich. And we've got to have the word. We've got to be tethered to the word. And I, I believe that 100%. And some of us are the orthopraxy guys. We're thinking, man, we've got to actually do what scripture says. Enough talking about it. Enough talking about it. Enough, enough Bible studies. We've had enough of those, right? We've gone through more, uh, Beth, more Bible studies than we care to mention. Like, we, we've, got the, we've got it. Let's go do something. And we're quick to action. And then there's this other group uh, or tribe uh, denomination who says, man, you guys, uh, you know, look like, uh, you know, look like you're studying in a library the whole time. There's just no passion. Like we can have passion for, uh, for college football and we can have passion for CrossFit and we can have passion for whatever else that we're doing, but there's no passion for the things of God. And so we sing songs like we just sang. I hope they gripped your heart like they did mine. That, but but we're, just, we're just slow to show any emotion at all. We're just, we come in here with stoic faces just saying, okay, you know, lest, uh, lest I convince anyone that I'm impressed with God this morning. And so Acts is, is dealing with this very thing. Um, let's just jump in. In, in Acts 15, uh, the very first part of it, says, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, you can underline that, Paul and Barnabas did not like what these guys that were coming down from Judea were teaching. Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the detail, in detail, the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers. So we see, first of all, that uh, there's some people coming in that are teaching that all these new Christians had to, had to abide by the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, and so they're bringing in with such a message. And let me just say this too. Why this is such a big deal. Because the church encounters a problem that if they didn't handle in the, in the, re, in the right way, it could have significantly derailed the church altogether. It's a really subtle danger, but it's just greatly important. And it deals with these two issues as we're going to look at this. Unity and priority. Unity and priority. And it's the same thing that even Jason read this morning in John 17. I put that scripture on the slide. Jesus uh, praying in this Trinitarian prayer, Holy Father, keep them, that's us, he's speaking to his followers in your name, which you have given to me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So there's this huge precedence that Jesus says, my heart is that church would be one. Now here's the problem. When you look at the church today, and I'm not speaking just of our church, although there's some of this in our church, and there's a temptation for churches all over the world to end up in this place, even as you look at the church, the visible church, the people who claim Christianity. A lot of times we don't see this idea of unity or priority. As a matter of fact, I read a, uh, I read a study, the most recent study this year, that said by the year 2030, I think it said, that 40 million young people would walk away from the faith. 40 million young people that grew up in church, in student ministry, in youth group, doing the Wednesday night thing, um, coming when the doors are open, 40 million. That is an unbelievable number. In essence, that we will lose a generation of Jesus followers in a generation. And they're going to walk away. And here's Here's my argument of why I see them walking away. Because they see a discrepancy between what the word of God holds high in values and the lives of their parents and the lives of those in the church. So they're looking at the church and they're like, I'm not impressed. These people in our church, they're, they're chasing after the same thing the world's chasing after. They're holding high the idols of the world just like, uh, just like the world's chasing after those things. And they see this discrepancy that, that we don't come underneath the authority of the word and that we don't wrap our lives around it and our community is not, is not based in what Scripture says that it should be based in. Isn't that what Jesus said? That they, the world will know that you're my disciples by what? Your incredible love for one another. That when things get hard, you don't run. When you encounter things you don't understand in Scripture, you don't run. 
When people offend you, you don't run away. Like there's this thing inside here that says we've got to be the people of God and we've got to come together. And this is what this passage really addresses. A lot of the first Christians were Jews. And Jews had been raised on the Old Testament law. And one of the most important Jewish laws was that every male had to be circumcised. And it was a God-given sign throughout the Old Testament. You can read it in Leviticus, how it was instituted to the people. That the people of God were to be separate from the world. And so a lot of these Jewish Christians were teaching, if you are really going to be a child of God, talking to the Gentiles, we'll let you in to the secret club that we have here, but you have to first be circumcised. And you can see how this might limit the growth of the men's ministry of the Gentile church, right? All the women and children were fine. They're coming. The men are sitting in the car saying, you know what? Just not today. And so this is the issue that has come up, right? And it becomes a very big deal very quickly. It says even in the passage we just read that there was no small dissension in verse 2 and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas saying no, and you'll see this. You can see Paul's full argument in the book of Galatians, which is about a 10-minute read. I encourage you to read it later. That he sets out this idea, and the possibility for division became very real. So Paul and Barnabas agreed with some of these other teachers from Judea. These were the people who had come from the original Jewish church in Jerusalem. And they said, you know what, we've got to appeal to, uh, to the help of some of the other church elders. And so they got together in verse 4. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. You see quickly that it's the Pharisees. Now, these are people who used to be uh, like the religious leaders. They've been converted. They're in the Christian church, but they're demanding, again, that they keep the ceremonial law. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after they had much debate. So there's debate everywhere. It seems like everywhere Paul goes, there's some, there's some debate. I feel like he was one of those that wasn't going to be a, a doormat for anybody. He was just getting with it. Peter. You remember Peter, right? Upon this rock, I'll build my church, that Peter. He stood up and said, brothers, you know in the early days that God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe in God who knows the heart. Maybe you should underline that. That's an incredible, powerful statement and a convicting statement at the same time in God who knows our heart. He bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us in verse 9. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. One commentator talked about Peter's rebuttal right here and said it was a theological miracle. The fact that he put all these things together in such a way that made such clear sense and it would say later that uh, they all uh, became silent. Basically, to recap Peter's argument or testimony here, he just points to the amazing things that God has done in the life of the Gentiles. First, the sign of the Holy Spirit. That there was no distinction between us, the Jews who grew up in Jew by birth, and them, the Gentiles. Again, he says, all by God's grace. Again, that would later be just the theme of uh, the book of Galatians, his letter to Galatians. All by grace through faith. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, right? That's That's that message of Galatians. Again, this is the third or fourth time that the church has all come together and asked if God could really do this. Peter also mentions this idea of them placing a yoke. He says, listen, what does he say in verse 10? Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Peter says, listen, I am a Jew, a Jew of very Jews, right? And I can't even fulfill the law exactly how it's supposed to be done. You know, exactly, uh, exactly what can we do? Can we wash clothes on the Sabbath or no clothes? And how many steps can we take? And is it okay to eat turkey bacon? I'm, like, I'm a Jew, and I don't even know how I'm going to do this. Of the 613 Jewish laws there were, 
There were a lot of laws. Some of those God had handed down through the Old Testament. A lot of them were made up by the rabbis of the day so could help people keep the laws. And they were enslaved by this. And Paul says, why would, I mean, Peter says, why would we put this yoke on them? A yoke is, uh, you know, it's a device that you would put on uh, farm animals to help them, you know, go in a certain direction. And it was also used of the Jewish rabbis. And it was their interpretation of the teachings of the Old Testament. And so every rabbi had their own yoke and certain colors that you would wear and how you would hang out and how you would ceremonially wash your hands. They all had this different yoke. That's why Jesus would say, hey, take my yoke upon you, right? Because my yoke is easy. So circumcision was just one. There's 612 others of these. And Peter's like, listen, I'm a Jew of Jews and I, I'm not even keeping all of these very well. So why should we, in some kind of pug self-righteousness, pass those on to these Gentile brothers and sisters? None of these things could save us anyway. I think I put this on the screen to kind of sum up his message. None of these things could save us anyway. Faith in the finished work of Christ is what saved us. Not what we did, but faith in what he's done. In verse 12, And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened I like they felt they fell silent. Peter had a good point. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related again the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. And you see this thing very quickly. You see this idea of the, we talked about earlier, the three-legged stool, the orthopathos was the emotion of what God's doing. That God's doing this incredible thing. And the orthopraxy of actually how they're living out, right, this, these ideas. What they're trying to debate here is if whether it was within the confines of the word, which is an important question. Verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied, now this is James, the brother of Jesus. Brothers, listen to me. Simon, that was Peter's other name, Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. We could spend the rest of the sermon right on that, how God took a people who didn't have a name and said, these people are going to be my people and I'm going to, I'm going to make a name for them and they're going to bear my name. And with the words of, and the words, and with this, the words of the prophet agree, just as it's written, he quotes this passage from Amos, after this I will return and will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I'll restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name says to the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment, back to James, is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who are turning to God. I love that James' response was to get back into God's word, God's revealed word. And maybe that's how we should start a lot of things. If we have some theological questions or we've got some debate whether this is right or wrong or we've got ethical dilemma or moral problems, maybe we should say, hey, what does the Bible say about this? My dad was so good to point me back to this over and over to the point where it was so frustrating to me as a teenager. I would go and ask my father these things. Dad, can, can I do this or is this wrong? And his first question was, what does the Bible say about that? Well, dad, I don't want to go look at what the Bible says about that. One, I'm not going to like it. Two, that takes a lot of work. Why don't, I didn't have Google at the time, right? Dad, why don't you just tell me what the Bible says about this? And he rarely would. Let's get out the Bible, see what God's word says about it. I love to... You see the Spirit of God working combined with the Word of God to produce this incredible change. This phrase in verse 19 that says, We should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Maybe your NIV translation uh, says, We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. If you're a King James guy, it says, We should trouble not them. The real word for this uh, not trouble or trouble not, uh, not make it difficult, literally means to annoy them with unnecessary, bothersome things. I think it speaks a lot for our church, to our church, that any obstacle that we can eliminate, I think we should eliminate it. Anything that might keep people from coming to God, we should eliminate those things from our life. Even preferences for things that I really like, sometimes I have to put aside. This is what Paul said as he's... Um, as he says that, I, you know, I'm going to do whatever it takes. To the slave, I'll become like a slave. To the Jew, I'll become like a Jew. 
so that they might see the gospel in my life. Any obstacle we can eliminate, I think we should eliminate it. I think about this in my communication, in my preaching. I don't want to make it difficult for people who are unfamiliar with Christianity to turn to God because I use a bunch of terms that they don't understand, like sanctification and mortification and all these occasion words that we have, right? I remember the second sermon that I preached as a preview service. Someone came up to me after the service and, and uh, we was referencing Ephesians and he said, who is, who is H-E, who, who the H-E-L-L is? Paul. I kept using this idea of Paul said this, Paul said this. I didn't explain that to them. They were coming in, had no idea who Paul was, thought he was one of our saints, I guess. But sometimes in my preaching, if I'm not careful, that I can make it difficult for people who, are, who don't know the lingo to come to God. Or I think about this in terms of our church. I, hate, I hope that our church is not so full of uh, cliques and inward focus that it's nearly impossible for outsiders to come in and pen, penetrate community. And I don't, I don't want to make it difficult that we come and put masks on as church and we, we come in with our big smiles and our big Bibles and all dressed up and looking good and we just walk right in here and act like life is just like put together. When everyone else's life, if we're honest, we know our life's not put together. I mean, even this morning, how many of us just spent a whole lot of time in the flesh, right? Just trying to get here. And then we pull up in the parking lot and, and you know, we tell our kids, we threaten our kids with death and say, listen, you know, don't mention what just happened in this car. We're going to go in there and we're going to put on smiley faces and we're going to honor God, dadgummit. How many of us live that kind of life, right? We put this facade uh, of righteousness on so that people feel like they have to live up to some certain kind of standard. When, you know, the scripture says the only people that God uses are people who are incredibly messed up. We, we are. If you, you come in today and you feel like you're, God can never use you because I'm incredibly messed up, you should say that's the only people God uses. If you came in with some kind of stereotypical understanding that, that you have to reach a certain level for God to use you, you've missed the gospel in, in its essence. Anyone who comes to God with a resume, God says you can't come in. But the people who crawl in and say, God, I got nothing to give, but I give you what I got. And he said, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Sometimes our own fake piety is what actually prevents other people from coming to Christ. Sometimes we project this sanctified, perfect life family. I love, I saw one brother in here who spent the weekend without his wife, and I said, how are you, bro? And he just, just, you know, said, dude, it's been a rough weekend. Some honesty. I remember meeting somebody at the church one time, this is several years ago, that I introduced to them. I said, hey, brother, how are you? And he looked at me and said, I am not your dang brother. He used a different word there. There's this language sometimes we get as the people of God that we, we, just, we just miss out on what God is really doing and we make it difficult for people to come to Christ. I don't want to make it difficult for people. That's what James says. We shouldn't make it difficult. We shouldn't make it annoyingly bothersome for these people to come to Christ. I don't want to make it difficult by parading some sort of political party, but whether Republican or Democrat up here to say that we're endorsing that. You don't see our church doing that kind of thing because that's just another layer of something that bothers. It's, it's troublesome for people to go to Christ because of these blanket statements that we've made and we've convoluted political positions or American uh, dream with uh, actual the gospel. Some of us make it difficult for people to come to Christ by alienating them through our social media posts. Listen, we should spend the rest of the day talking about this because some of us, we should have a, we should get some sort of license. I've said this to be able to use social media because we make these social media rants and all it does is make it troublesome for people to come to Christ because we bear the name of Christ and yet we're ranting about all these things. When scripture says we should use our mouth to bless people, not to curse, that our words should be full of grace and full of salt and yet we're whatever we're doing with some kind of Facebook rant about this or about that, and all it does is create division. It just builds a wall. People ask me, well, how do I know whether I should post something or not? I say, you should pray before posting. You should check scripture. You should seek wise counsel. So I said, well, if I did that, I would never post. And I said, thank you very much. <laughs> right? Maybe you just shouldn't. That's what, that's what, that's what it means to be wise. 
Listen, and I put this on the screen. We have a message that is life or death. And no secondary message, no matter how important to us personally, should get in our way, should build walls, should alienate people on the other side. They are looking for lives that are radically changed by the gospel, that we have been so changed that no secondary issue are we building walls up. Verse 19, sorry, getting a little hot over here. Keep going. Verse 19, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. It's kind of a, kind of a weird statement, right, to come, out of a, uh, to come out of a church business meeting. You read that initially and you say, you know, it seems like this random list. Don't have immoral sex and don't strangle animals or something. There's really two things going on here. First, this idea of sexual immorality. In the pagan world, extramarital sex was something commonly accepted as norm. It was the idol of the day. Many people grew up in the Gentile world with them having uh, pagan sanctuaries in the middle of town. It was practice to go in and find pagan prostitutes and to, uh, it was just no, their normal daily rhythm of how they would do. I know it's far from what God had desired from them. And so this was the verdict passed down from the church was, listen, you can't do that. And if we had time, we would go into looking at the moral laws and the ceremonial laws and how Jesus only amped up the moral laws. He said, you know, you've heard don't commit adultery. I say, you know, lusting in your heart. He took it to the next level. So when people look at us and say, well, how do you pick and choose from the Old Testament and what laws you still obey and what laws you don't? And just quickly, the ceremonial laws were, were what set you apart, right, ethnically. And those, according to Jesus, we don't have to keep those anymore, like circumcision, like ceremonial washing, like how many days that we can walk on the Sabbath, those kind of things, ceremonial things. But the moral laws are still what it means to be the people of God, that there's a code, there's a way that God made things to work, and we're supposed to abide by that. Now, why would he only mention the one? Again, lying, murder, stealing, all of those things are wrong. He's not saying that you can do those. But what he is saying is that this one is commonly accepted in your Amongst your midst. It's a very, one of the very things that uh, Paul would later point out when he writes his letter to Corinth. And again and again, we don't have time to get into that. But it is of significant importance for, even for us to talk to today that there is a sexual ethic within the, within the Christian faith. And we live in a world again today that we've embraced uh, some of this and we've shunned some of this. And there's common practice within the church today. Of I think about the issue of pornography which would fit under this idea of sexual immorality. And that's something that we've just chosen to not address a lot. And we'll just call that a struggle and every man does it. But God says, no, that's an abomination to me. That is sinful. That separates our relationship. When churches preach against sex before marriage or adultery or those kind of things, the watching world looks at us and calls us prude. But there is a moral ethic to following God. The second thing that he points out is that we shouldn't eat meat from strangled animals and from blood and food polluted by idols. Why did, he, why did he list that? Because those were things that were really offensive to the Jews. So he's not, he's not making that on the same law. This is him in a pastor's heart speaking to the Gentiles and said, listen, no sexual immorality and don't eat the food that's been sacrificed to idols. Those things would be really offensive to the Jews, and it would cause fellowship problems. That's why he references, even in that same thing, the law, saying that this was what was read by Moses. Don't make it difficult, in essence, don't make it difficult for your fellow Jewish Christians. They have cultural sensitivities. You need to be gracious to them. It's amazing. This is a very uh, pastoral word from James. To the Jews, he says, don't make it difficult for the Gentiles by asking them to follow the ceremonial law of circumcision. To the Gentiles, hey, don't make it difficult for the Jews. Don't wave your freedom in their face. 
It's quite a reduction as well from 613 laws to two. Keep going in verse 22. We're going to make some application here in a minute. Verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And they sent Judas, not, not the one that betrayed Jesus. Um, he's dead at this time. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the letter. The letter, again, basically was just telling them what they had decided. Skip down to verse 30 real quick. So when they were sent off, they went to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. When I was reading about this, um, I came across something that was pretty interesting. Some commentary written by um, Andy Stanley on the, the drifts that this early church is tempted to follow and how those apply to us. And I'm going to talk through those with us, and then I've mentioned a few of my own. The first, these are drifts that the first church were tempted to be drifting away, away from the mission of God, and how we as a church and we personally are tempted to do the same thing. The first was a drift from advancing the mission to preserving the tradition. Again, remember, we started out this in verse 1. Amazing things happened in the church at Antioch, but some, it says in verse 1, came down from Judea, And we're teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. The first is from advancing the mission to preserving the tradition. If we aren't careful, our lives and our churches slowly drift away from a passion to advance the mission of God. We move from this passion to advance the mission of God to preserving the tradition that we grew up in. And this alone, one commentator says, might be the greatest cause of ineffectiveness of the church in our lifetime. I served on church staff for nearly 15 years before I planted, uh, me and some buddies, uh, planted Covenant Church. And I remember numerous discussions and meetings and retreats where we spent countless hours debating this one thing. That we were slowly drifting from advancing the mission with that being the white hot burning reason that we gather and why we why we plan out right calendars of how we're going to invest our money and time and we would spend days i remember one three-day retreat where the only thing we talked about was whether or not we could have drums on stage it was the only thing very little praying very little talking about how how we can disciple people very little worshiping together the only issue was is it right or wrong to have drums on stage I remember over the year debates about uh, color curtains that we were going to hang and whether we should buy those curtains in America or with four, I mean, I mean, to the like, if we could sing Chris Tomlin songs. And I was like, man, they're not that great anyway. Um, Anyway, um, we spent so little time in prayer. It was unbelievably heartbreaking to me as a young youth pastor that we were fighting this stuff that doesn't matter. We had huge debate on what we were going to do with the handbells. I don't know if you've ever been in church that had the handbells. Those things are cool. Um, not going to reach teenagers today. I've never seen, you know, like, man, if I, I'm going to find a church that has just an awesome handbell ministry. We're laughing at that. If I said that in other churches in our area, they would be glaring me down, you know. Listen, God has placed us here to be a light in the midst of darkness. And if we're not careful... We will worship nostalgia and how we grew up and the songs that we like to sing and the songs that warm our hearts. And we will fight for those things over the very mission of God of what we need to do to reach people. Peter stands up in verse 7 and directing us back to the mission. He says, he stands up and says, man, look what God has done. The Holy Spirit's come in. And then Paul and Barnabas stand up and they said, hey, can you believe what God is doing in the Gentiles? Returning our attention back to advancing the mission. 
I love that many of our staff meetings, as our staff, we come together and we ask this question, are we really making disciples of Jesus? Is the word of God stirring up right our emotions? And little time on the other things. The second drift. First is from advancing the mission to preserving tradition. Second is from priority to preference. When you see Acts 2, these people had this great priority to live out the commands of God. It was huge for them. The church starts with a picture of this in Acts 2. It's a beautiful picture of community, loving each other. It says they met each other daily in homes and in temple courts. And they're living out Romans 12, continually preferring one another, trying to outdo one another with honor. It's this beautiful picture of what the church could be. But a few short chapters later, people are coming in from the outside trying to make people look a certain way. From priority to preference is the drift, and it's the danger that we face. Again, in verse 1, these men came down from Judea teaching something else. And Paul addresses the same thing again at the church at Corinth. These people would come together, and they were from all different walks of life at Corinth. He was telling them just to wait on people so that they could show up. He said the same thing again to the people in Thessalonica that the white-collar folks would get off work early or not have to work, and they would come together, and they were supposed to share a family meal together, the Lord's Supper. It was actually a supper. But what was happening is the white-collar people were getting there early. They were eating all of the supper and drinking all the drink to the point where many of them were drunk. And then the blue-collar workers would show up later to have a meal, and there was no food. And Paul says, listen, you've got it all wrong. You've got to prefer each other. Wait for each other. Again, from priority to preference. Listen, I know we all have preferences. We all have things that we would like to see happen. We all have the the things that are important to us. But when we confuse priority to preference, and we fall into this guilty trap of making it difficult for other people to come to Christ. I'm not saying you shouldn't have a preference and you shouldn't have a political opinion. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that put those things in the back seat, not the driver's seat. Lead with matters of greatest priority. And if we get to preferences one day, let's get to them. That's fine. The third drift is from unity to individualism. Unity to individualism. Maybe you could say if Keller was preaching in this message, he would say the drift from self-forgetfulness, that's the phrase he coined, to self-centeredness. From self-forgetfulness to self-centeredness. Notice that Peter is a Jew. He's the one standing up for the Gentiles here and saying, listen, we shouldn't have to do all these other things to them. They're just like us. They've been saved by grace just like us, through faith just like us. They should be just like us. Just, Just a little while later, Galatians 2 Paul talked about having to confront Peter on his own bigotry after he had made this stand in verse 11 of Galatians 2. I think I have this up there. But when Peter came to Antioch, this is Peter coming from the Jewish world into the Gentile world, into that church. When Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face for what he did was very wrong. When he came around, when he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some other of his friends came from Jerusalem... Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism, it says, from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. Here's the point. That there's a danger for all of us to move from self-forgetfulness to self-centeredness, from unity to individualism. Again, this is why the watching world thinks the church is a joke. We are claiming to be one body, but acting like we're all fighting against each other. And we've got some real work to do as a church, as Covenant Church, as a church family. We've got some real work to do individually to promote unity in the body. Tom Rayner, who's a uh, guy that... uh, used to work for Lifeway, he's done a lot of real research. He researched a lot of these reasons for churches breaking up, and he lists a reason of about 20, I took about 10 of those, of reasons that unity breaks down in, in a church. 
The first is because of gossip. Church members talk about one another instead of talking to each other. Paul calls church members who gossip people that are in Romans 1 verse 29 filled with all sorts of unrighteousness. Can I give you just a little helpful mantra that has helped me out? Listen, if you're offended by someone, first, just try to let it go. Just assume they were having a bad day. They woke up on the wrong side of the bed. You have no idea what kind of walk that they're walking. And just let it go. And if for some reason it's just gnawing at you and the enemy's using it in your mind, the next step would be just to give it to God. Say, God, I don't know what's going on there, but this person said this and this about me. It really hurt me. You just give it to God. And if for some reason you still can't let it go, what's the next step? You've got to go to the person. Listen, go read Matthew 18. Jesus gives us a prescription of how we handle conflict like this. That we just go to the person. If they don't listen, then we take another person with us and we go to the person. And if they, they're still not helping at all, then we appeal to the pastors and we get them involved. And there's a reason that God gave that to us. Reasons unity breaks down. First is gossip. Second is self-serving church members. Some people in the church insist on getting their way for everything from worship style to worship service. However, being a covenant partner with the body is based upon humility and selflessness. Had a buddy the other day and I was asking, he's looking for a church in another city. And I said, man, how did it go? And he said, man, I didn't like the worship all that much. And I said, good, it wasn't for you. Like they're not singing songs to you. Like this is not about you and what you want. Were the, song, were the words true that you're singing? Were they lifted up to God? That should be our metric, not, not how if it makes us feel warm and fuzzy inside, right? It's not, it's not for you. Third was lack of prayer. A church that does not pray together is likely to fragment, he says, in several special interest groups. Additionally, most of this comes when people aren't living on mission, when they've replaced Christ at the center we still do prayer on Tuesdays at noon, and I encourage any of you that can, that aren't working, to come pray with us. And There's just normally four or five of us, and it just takes about 30 minutes. It's been very encouraging and rich to me. And We're hoping to create more times where we get together, and all the agenda is is just prayer and worship. We're just going to sing and bless the Lord with our voices, and we're just going to pray together and see what God might do in our city. Next is fear of confrontation. Too many people in churches would rather sweep problems under the rug than deal with them. Next is adopting a hypocritical spirit of culture. When we're so frustrated with something, we're just, we're just hypercritical when we walk in. Let me just find something that I could complain about. This normally starts with conversation like, can you believe what he did? Next is churches known more for what they're against than what they're for. This negativity becomes pervasive in the congregation and destroys church unity. Finally, the silent and fearful majority. Some people said, I've heard this said even in our church just in the past week, that sometimes it's not always good to know the truth. And I said, that's a lie from hell. We should fight for truth. It should be important to us to stand on what is true. Such a statement like that is unbiblical and symptomatic of people who let evil exist because they're afraid to confront it. One of the greatest problems in churches today via Tom Rainer's, what he says, and I agree with him, is the breakdown of church unity. It's insidious, debilitating, and it's destructive. Our scripture reading, scripture reading today, Kaylee read, was of Ephesians 4. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And if there's a way for you to write that phrase down or underline that, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Because unity is not something we create. The Spirit creates the unity. That's how you can see even in the own uh, group of disciples. Have you, have, you, have a, you have a zealot who wants to kick uh, Rome out and uh, the, he wants to just take over whatever means necessary that we're going to separate from Rome. And then you've got Matthew who actually works for Rome. 
But for some reason, because of the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, that they can coexist and actually be disciples and leaders of the early church, right? They were, they, they were the first group. Yet they put their preferences aside and made it something that's priority. And part of that was maintaining the unity of the Spirit. You can't create unity. You can only destroy it. You can't create it. You can only destroy it. That's why he says, Paul says in Ephesians 4, we should maintain the unity of the Spirit. Listen, your gifting is not the point Your revelation from God, not the point. Your role in in the church or even in the world, that's not the point. Your prophecy, not the point. Maintaining unity is the point. The main characteristic that Jesus said would mark his church for the watching world is our what? Love for one another. Real, authentic unity. So we're all growing in this. Aren't we? Some of us are in that awkward junior high stage. Well, we kind of got some of life figured out, but a lot of it we don't have figured out. Maybe we're early high school, we're a little arrogant because we've just discovered our gifts and we're struggling with our identity. Some of us walking through a spiritual midlife crisis. Others overwhelmed and angry. Listen, we're just a big spiritual family trying to mature together. Later on in Ephesians 4, it would say, growing up into every way into him who is the head into Christ. Hate to break it to you, but there's no mature Christian in this room. None of us have made it. We're all maturing. We're on the way somewhere. And God's doing a work in us. And just about the time that I think I got things figured out, I blow it. I'm guessing you probably do too. I want to pray for us, and I want the Holy Spirit to do what he needs to do in your heart and life. We're going to take communion in a minute, and I love this as the practice that Jesus instituted. It's this great sign of unity that we come from different places and have different preferences, but we put all those aside because our identity is in Christ and our priority is making him known to the watching world. We share a big family meal together. Father, I pray your Holy Spirit would do what he needs to in our hearts. Convict of sin, would you bring healing and restoration? Or some of us are just so tired and weary from fighting the good fight for so long, and we just need rest. Not physical rest, although we probably need that too. We need soul rest today. And I pray, Father, that we would run to you and find real rest. Would you tell us in Psalm 16 that in your presence... There's fullness of joy. At your right hand, pleasures forevermore. And I ask forgiveness for my own self of the times where I run to other places to find joy and satisfaction when I should be running to you. Father, I pray for us as a family, as a church family, a faith family, Lord, that we would be marked by unity, by this incredible love for others where we overlook offenses and we would be quick to repent. Lord, help none of us get to this place where we feel like we've got it all figured out. And if we're offending people, Father, would we repent quickly and restore relationship? Lord, I pray that we're not just word people or action people or emotion people. Where your church would just be your bride. That we're beautiful because we're washed over with your word and we're seeking to live our lives on mission and we're invigorated when, our, when we walk with you. Would you do this work in us that we can't do that is supernatural? And the world would know that we're your disciples by our love for one another. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Our ushers are here to provide communion and I want you to take some time praying before you come, but you don't have to be a member of our church, just a member of the church of Jesus and desiring to walk in obedience with him. We just take the bread and dip it in the cup and you're invited to come and participate in this when, when you're ready. I'll be standing in the back if you'd like to pray with me about anything. Listen for the voice of God and obey what he tells you to do.